Good morning, church family. I'm excited to be here with you today. We had an incredible service last week as we celebrated nine baptisms, as we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. He is risen. Oh, you almost got it. Let's try that again. He is risen. Much better, much better. Last week, Pastor Rob spent some time talking about the experience of the people surrounding Jesus. He talked about their experiences. They went through the process of seeing Jesus crucified, buried, and they, we watched them mourn. And they felt the weight of Jesus' death. But then we got to see them rejoice in Jesus' resurrection. I believe that it's incredibly important for us to feel the weight of Jesus' death in order to understand and feel the weight of Jesus' resurrection. The resurrection has so much meaning for us today. The resurrection gives us purpose. The resurrection gives us life. The resurrection gives us identity and direction and perseverance. And the resurrection fills the darkest moments and darkest situations with certain and blinding hope. Today I want to spend some time focusing on the effects of the resurrection for us. How do we actually respond to the resurrection? Is it just a fact to acknowledge or just an event to celebrate year after year? Or is it something that actually impacts every fiber of our being? Jesus himself, and especially the resurrection, demands a response. Now the initial response to the resurrection is either acceptance for salvation or rejection. But the second response that we're going to talk about today is belief for sanctification. So we're going to be in the, we're going to spend the morning in Romans 6 as we dig into understanding how the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ practically impacts our lives. Let's pray before we dig in. Lord God, we just praise you and we thank you for the truth of the resurrection. And we worship you in response to all that you accomplished on that glorious day. We thank you that we are no longer slaves to fear, but now belong to you and are able to serve you freely. I ask today that you help us to all grow deeper in our understanding of the impact that the resurrection and our new identity has on our lives, and that we can thrive in the hope, the freedom, and the joy that is found only in you. Amen. All right, so there's two responses that we're going to re- talk about today. The responses to the resurrection, belief for salvation and belief for sanctification. So under that first one, belief for salvation, the resurrection is proof that God has accepted Jesus' blood spilt on the cross as propitiation or payment for our sins. The resurrection is proof that Jesus' work was finished. The resurrection is proof that the guilt, the shame, the the pollution, and the fear that entered into mankind in the garden in Genesis 3 was replaced with honor, with innocence, with purity, and with power. The resurrection is proof that we once again have access to God. 
The resurrection is proof that Acts 4.12 is true. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So our initial response to the resurrection is one of two responses. It's either belief or rejection. There's no middle ground. We either accept and believe the resurrection or we reject the resurrection. Belief results in salvation. Rejection leaves us in our already condemned state. So if you haven't responded to the resurrection, I implore you, respond to it today. God has pursued mankind from the beginning of creation all through history and is still pursuing you today. God has provided the one and only way for salvation, and that was through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. And we can enter into a relationship with God through faith alone because of his incredible grace. But today we're going to spend some more time focusing on that second response. So belief for sanctification. So if you've already made the decision to follow uh, God by faith, enter into a relationship with God by faith, sanctification follows. Sanctification simply means the process of becoming like Christ. And this is one of our chief goals now as believers. We see it in Ephesians. Ephesians 1.4 says that we should be holy and blameless. Ephesians 4.13 says that we should grow to maturity and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4.22-24 says to put off your old self and to put on your new self created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. So if this is our calling, how do we get there? There's three words that we're going to talk about today. Know, consider, yield. To know, to consider, and to yield. This, these three words are a process which we will continually find ourselves in. And when this process is learned, our walk with God, our relationship with the Lord, and our spiritual health flourishes. Quick definitions, and then we're going to be jumping into Romans 6 as we see the principle laid out. So number one, to know. We need to understand the truth of what Christ has accomplished and understand our identity in Christ. If we are unaware or don't understand these truths, it's impossible to move forward. So we'll, we'll start there. Then two, to consider. Some translations say to reckon. It's the idea of to estimate or compute, to accept something as certain and then place reliance on it. To calculate, to conclude. So the opposite would be to ignore. We can know truth, but we can still ignore it practically in our lives. And that third piece is to yield. It's the idea of living in the truth and responding appropriately. And this order is always important because we can't live something out if we don't know that it applies to us, and we can't apply something if we don't know it. So we must know the truth, we must understand the truth, we must apply the truth, and then we must live in what's true. If you're not familiar with the book of Romans, here's where we're at in the book. Romans was written by Paul to the church in Rome. Romans is probably one of the most theologically rich books of the Bible, and it's one of the most systematic books in the Bible. It's also one of my favorite books in the Bible. There's seven main sections in Romans. The main theme is the righteousness of God. 
So of those seven sections, the, there, two of those are just the intro and the wrap-up, so beginning and end. So there's five main sections sandwiched in there. Simply put, those five sections can be labeled like this. Condemnation, justification, sanctification, vindication, and application. We're going to be right here in, in, in chapter 6, right in the middle, in that sanctification section. So it's in the context of who we were and what Christ has accomplished and who we are now that Paul jumps into chapter 6. It's because of the gospel, because of the resurrection, because of who we are now, how do we realistically respond to the truth of the gospel? How do we practically respond to the resurrection? Christ has already won the final victory over evil and death, guaranteeing our future with him. It's this knowledge and how we respond to it which gives us the strength to overcome sin in our life and in our world. Let's read this together today. Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know, there's our first key word, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know, there it is again, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we'd be no longer enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider, there's our next word, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Let's dig in. Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? So Paul is starting this section here with an argument. Now this is a conversation or an, or an argument that we still see today. Here's the argument. Grace is most evident in the midst of sin. Where there is no sin, there is no need for grace. Therefore, in order to magnify the grace of God, we should continue in sin. This is the argument that Paul is addressing here. It's ultimately a continuation of the end of chapter 5, where it says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace is good. We like grace. We need grace. We were saved by grace. So is this a bad argument? Yes. Yes, it's a bad argument. But you probably already knew that. And we're going to see Paul explain why. But for us today, we don't need to sin to experience the grace of God. We have already experienced, received, and have significant testimony 
that God is a gracious God. Amen? Paul continues on in verse 2. By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? So Paul answers with a crystal clear answer. By no means. No way. Certainly not. Not in any degree, way, or condition. That's a ridiculous question. Right? But now, if you're a parent, you know that when you tell your kid no, the usual response is, why? Why? So God knows that this is the heart of mankind and knows that if he just left us there, we're going to be asking the question, why? So Paul continues on. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul is appealing to their new identity. He says, this argument doesn't make sense because of who you are now. You've had an identity change. He's saying, we have positionally, in Christ, died to sin. And if we have died to sin, it doesn't make sense for us to live in it anymore. Now, an important consideration here is he's not talking about sins as specific actions against God, but rather sin as a reigning power in our lives. That's the context here. We're dealing with a root issue here. The reigning power of sin in and over our lives. We must understand in our identity, in Christ, as believers, the old is gone and we are now a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone, anyone is in Christ, which you are, if you are a believer, you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the idea here is embracing a truthful view of reality and then living in it. As believers, we are no longer positionally in our old edemic nature, but we are now in our new identity, in our new position in Christ. As believers, our identity belongs in our future destiny with Christ, not in our past with Adam. Your past sin doesn't define you anymore. Christ's righteousness does. So how do we live in that? This is where Paul starts taking the first principle, to know, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We've been baptized into Christ Jesus. This is talking about a spiritual reality that happens at the moment of salvation. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit, which joins the believer to Christ. This joining to Christ is also a separation from our old life and an association with the new. We are now positionally no longer in Adam, but are now in Christ. This is the spiritual reality that is publicly portrayed in water baptism. We walk into the baptism identified with the old self. We are baptized, publicly identified with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And as we exit the baptism, we are identified as a new creation positionally in Christ. Baptism portrays publicly what has already happened spiritually. 
Baptism in many countries and cultures communicates publicly to everyone around which side you're on. So Paul is saying here, we have been baptized into Christ Jesus, into his death, into his resurrection, in order that we too might walk in newness of life. So if our lives look the same before and after salvation, we're not walking in the newness of life that has been given to us by the resurrection. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Our identification with Christ in his death guarantees our unification with Christ in a resurrection like his. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ as the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. We have a future resurrection awaiting us. That is something that gives us hope, perseverance, and joy each and every day. Verses 6 and 7. For we know... There's our word again. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Oh, I think I jumped a verse. That's right, we can read it again. Verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. So here's the big piece. Our sinful nature has lost its authority over us. We're no longer enslaved to sin because of our death. With Christ, we have been set free from the authority of sin. But just because we have been set free from the authority of sin doesn't mean that we don't give in to sin in our lives. But now because of the gospel, we have the ability to say no to our sinful nature and rather say yes to God. Our old self, our old man, those are terms just in reference to our demic life or life positionally in Adam. This is where we were positionally before salvation. Our new life is now life in Christ. So the big question is this, if we are no longer ruled by sin, why do believers so readily fall into it? The key is the flesh. The proclivity to sin still exists within us. Sin can now no longer overpower us, but it can deceive us. Satan can no longer overpower believers, but now lives entirely by deception. Here's an example. Imagine with me you're on a sports team. Don't worry. You don't need to know anything about sports to understand this illustration. (laughs) So you're on a team that you compete with. You're all like-minded, moving the same direction. You think the same way. You have a coach. Your coach is your authority. right? When the coach says to do something, you do it because you're part of the team. 
Now, after some time, you decide to switch teams. You now have a new team and a new coach. And this new team, the players and the coach, they all have different ideas, different methodologies, different life goals. And as you begin to learn to listen to your new coach, you might not understand everything that he's telling you to do, but you're trying. And it's going pretty well. Now your new team ends up competing against your old team. You see your old coach, your old team, and you find yourself listening. Even though you're not on their team anymore, you find yourself listening to the players and your coach. Even though your coach is no longer your authority, you're still listening to him because you're used to it. At the beginning, it's a struggle to get out of the habit of listening to your old coach, and here's why. You've been trained to listen to his voice. But after some time, you find yourself ignoring him more and more. And you find yourself listening to your new coach more and more. Learning and responding to the voice of your new authority. This is what Romans 6 is talking about. Your old nature, your old coach has lost its authority. You don't belong to it anymore. You don't have to listen to it anymore. You have a new nature, a new authority, a new coach, a new purpose. Let's live in that new identity and the freedom that comes with that new identity. Will it always be easy? No. But as you build habits of saying no to the flesh and saying yes to God, it will become more natural as you become like Christ and as you learn the voice of your new authority. Now, there are times in life when we are struggling with different sins or struggling to apply these, lose, these truths or struggling to live in our new identity, and it can be frustrating and discouraging. But we saw this in Nehemiah 8. When Ezra read the law, the people felt the weight of their sin. And the people wept, mourning their sin. And while conviction of our sin and mourning our sin is good, God doesn't want you to stay there. Because of the resurrection, you don't have to stay in that place of grief. There needs to be conviction of sin. Yes, but God has made a way through the gospel. And we can rejoice in that. God took care of our sin, our sin, and we can rejoice in that. And we can be reminded of the truth of Romans 8.1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are here and you are a believer, how much condemnation is there? None. We can rejoice in that because that is incredible. Because we look at our lives and we are discouraged and we are depressed when we are struggling with our sin and we look at ourselves and we condemn ourselves, but the one who reigns already says there is now no condemnation for you. That's exciting. Let's rejoice in that. Shoot. Verse 8. All right. Now, if we have died to sin, 
we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no longer any dominion over him. For the death that he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is where we transition from knowing and understanding into consider. The first 10 verses, we've seen the importance of knowing and understanding what is already true before we change behavior. We need to understand the why, because if we change behavior without understanding the why, it's almost always short-lived. That's why it's okay when our kids ask why to give them the why, so they can learn. And that's why Paul went through in verses 3, 6, and 9, do you not know? These are things that we need to know. Do you not know that we have been baptized into Christ Jesus for baptized into his death? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So it's in that context of knowing that's true of us. Verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we make the transition from a noun or the knowledge or possession of information into a verb, an active response to the knowledge. He's saying consider, calculate, add up the facts that have been presented in these first 10 verses, something that is already true, and respond appropriately. You are dead to sin. You are alive to God. Our position has changed. Grant Osborne says this, consider is a present tense command. And it means that even though we are dead to sin, we must continually reckon ourselves dead to the power of sin in our lives. While it has been done away with, verse 6, it is still an invading army trying to regain control and enslave us. So we must, as an act of will, consider ourselves at every instance of temptation to be dead to it. We are dead to sin and alive to God. Death speaks of separation. We are positionally separated from the authority of sin in our lives because of Jesus' death on our behalf. So it's on this foundation of knowing who we are, considering its truth for us, we move into the last three verses. And this is our transition to yield or to action. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Let not sin therefore reign, but rather present yourselves to God. This command is given to us as believers because now, because of the Holy Spirit, because of the resurrection, we now have the power to be victorious. No, it doesn't say, let not sin therefore exist. It says, let not sin therefore reign. So the question we need to ask is, who is the reigning authority in our lives? Is it our flesh? Is it our sin? Is it ourselves? Or is it the Lord? We must dethrone anyone or anything that isn't the Lord. 
So we are exhorted here, based on what is true, to make our experience conform to who we already are positionally. Who are we presenting ourselves to? We choose moment by moment, we choose daily who we are presenting ourselves to. So the, 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 the command is to let us present ourselves to God. And again, it's an appeal to identity. You who have been brought from death to life. You have been made free from the dominion of sin over. You have been freed from the law. You are now under grace with the power of the Holy Spirit. So now, in light of that, present your members, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength to the Lord as instruments for righteousness, not unrighteousness. Can we honestly look at our lives and say, yes, I am an instrument for righteousness, for the glory of God? Grant Osborne continues. He says, in this section, Paul says we will continue to be defeated in our spiritual walk until we realize the reality of our conversion as a union with Christ in his death and resurrection. If we know Jesus as Savior, then we must know him as Lord. And if we are a part of the family of God, we must live like it. Union with Christ's death means that we must die to sin. His death on the cross paid for our sins, but it also drew us into victory over sin and gave us the strength to be free from sin's power. As we wrap up today, let's jump to John chapter 11. Verses 25 through 27. So here in the story, Lazarus had died, and Jesus is on his way to raise Lazarus from the dead. But as he's approaching, Martha runs up to Jesus and says that Lazarus had died. Jesus' response, your brother will rise again. And Martha's response, she's like, well, yeah, I, I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She knows there's a resurrection coming, but here's Jesus' reply. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, before we get to Martha's response, Jesus here is talking about spiritually and eternally. All who believe in Jesus, though we may die physically, we will never die spiritually or eternally, and we will spend eternity in celebration in heaven with Jesus. This is our inheritance. This is our blessed hope. But Jesus asked her this question, Martha, do you believe this? Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Martha responded to Jesus' claim of being the resurrection and the life. Don't leave today. Don't leave this moment without saying, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then don't stop there. That's the knowing now move into living out what's true. There's a difference between believing in Jesus 
and actually following Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is the truth. If you are born again, we have a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We don't serve a prophet, priest, judge, or king who is dead. We have a living hope because Jesus is alive. We have an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. Jesus is alive. And while we live in that hope for the future, for today, God has called us to holy living. But it's not an empty call. It's not a call to something that's impossible. It's a call that he exampled by his life and enabled through the resurrection. We must know and understand what is true. We are new creations. The Christian life isn't just living in response the resurrection but it's living in the resurrection 